Okay, today my guest is Professor Steve Tolman. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Steve as a person. Professor Tolman is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally is a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Tolman is an AIB fellow and an ascendant scholar of the Western Academy of Management. He sits on the editorial boards of several major journals and served as an associate editor for Strategic Management Journal and a consulting editor for JIBS. His research includes global outsourcing, diversification, industry clusters, knowledge transfer in multinational firms, and international alliances and joint ventures. Steve served as the chair of the International Management Division of the AOM and the chair of the Global Strategy Interest Group of the SMS. He also chaired and co-chaired the Global Strategy Track for the AIB Annual Conference twice. Uh, thank you, Steve, for joining us. Oh, hi, Agas. Uh, you left out the one thing that I think is my really my major contribution, that is that I was a founding co-editor for uh, Global Strategy Journal. Now it's complete. Yes. Perfect. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, First I see question. that as my, as my uh, legacy <laughs> Perfect. for you all. Um, uh, Steve, what did you want to become when you were a child? Well, you know, uh, I grew up in an army family. My dad was, uh, was a career officer. And um, I, I, I would have to say that when I was a child, I, I didn't really think that much about what I was going to do. I, I imagine that probably... We all, you know, my family and, and people I knew, I mean, they're all army brats and we probably saw that as where we would go. I have to say, my mother always used to say that when I was a very small child, I one time said that what I wanted to be when I grew up was a big brown dog. <laughs> I have no idea. I, I don't know that that's true, but that's what she always said. Uh, so what's the earliest uh, awareness, moment of awareness between domestic versus international for you? Well, I got, I, yeah, when I was six years old, uh, we moved to Germany for a three year tour. And my father was uh, in the army there during, well, it was still the occupation. Hmm. And uh, so, in some very formative years from uh, six to nine, instead of, you know, I always say I, I never really got hooked on television because we didn't have television there, just Armed Forces Network. And, uh, you know, we, we within the, the bounds of what could be done back in the 50s, we visited around. So I always was interested in, um, in other cultures, other countries, I think, going back to that. And mm -hmm. then, um, you know, as I grew up, uh, we, the U.S. got involved in, in, Vietnam, well, the Cold War, and then Vietnam, and all this. So there's an awful lot of international um, political, geopolitical, military things. And because of my ties to the military, and I did serve, although I was, was post-Vietnam, uh, I I always paid, was interested and paid attention to um, international affairs. And um, internet, I, I didn't particularly see it as business, but. Uh, I, as I said, I served in the army from 1972 to, for about six years. And then I, I got out of the army and I went into industry and worked as an engineer for Mobile Chemical Company for five years before I went back to get a PhD. 
And um, I remember that, that I was in the plastics division based up in Rochester, New York. And, and uh, the engineering division was full of very good engineers. A lot of younger people. I was, you know, I early thirties um, who were from some of the best engineering schools in, in the Northeast, Worcester Polytech, RPI, places like that. And uh, it, it, it interested me that, you know, they were much better engineers than I was, but they didn't know anything about anything else. Mm. And I can remember conducting informal seminars because our company, I mean, mobile chemical company and oil were around the world and things would come up uh, and, and, people would come by because they knew that I was interested in this and been in the army and all this and say, uh, you know, Oh, almost at the level of, well, where is India anyway? And why should we be interested in it? And, uh, it sort of pulled me into the idea that, that, you know, the international and internet, cause this was kind of in a business setting, uh, international business was, was an interesting, um, interesting area and, and interesting beyond just my previous uh, thoughts about kind of national security, uh, geopolitical stuff. So it was really once I was working that international business uh, came to be a, an interest to me. But, but, you know, my interest in other countries goes back to when I was a small child growing up in Germany. About these informal seminars you mentioned, uh, this is uh, what led you to uh, pursue a PhD or uh, is this like a training session? Yeah. No, it wasn't. It was just people coming by my office and saying, you know, something about this. I don't know. Uh, so it was very informal, but it was, it was interesting to see how few people hmm. who, as I say, they were very well educated and involved in, in business and they just didn't know anything about it. Hmm. Um, I ended up, I had been there about four years. I ended up uh, getting divorced from my first wife, but it's kind of opened up possibilities for me a little bit. And I started, I realized I was working in a consumer products division and I didn't know anything about business. And I realized that as an engineer, um, my future was limited. And mm -hmm. so I started looking at MBA programs and a lot of people there in, were getting MBAs, not evening MBAs at, uh, well, often either, either uh, Rochester Polytech or University of Rochester. But I suddenly uh, had the opportunity to go somewhere else. So I started looking at um, possible graduate school options and um, applied for MBAs. And uh, what got me into the IB was I, I applied to UCLA, mostly because, as you may know, Rochester has one of the rainier climates in the U.S., and I really wanted to see the sun a little bit. So I, I applied to a variety of places and was accepted at several of them. But UCLA sent the application with the MBA and they also sent along an application to the PhD program uh, and said, you know, you have a high GMAT score and uh, maybe you'd be interested in this. And I looked at that and it had international business. And I was, ah, yeah, this is something that interests me. And so I, I applied for that. I will say beyond that, the I was also applied to and was accepted at the um, at Tufts at the Fletcher School of Diplomacy for their uh, Masters in International Affairs, whatever they call it. I don't really actually remember. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was probably my second most likely place to go. But I had a friend who was at that time getting an MBA at Harvard, and I visited him. I was up in Boston on a business trip. And he said, and I was talking to him about this stuff. He's a friend from the army. 
And he said, well, you know, um, I know somebody who's at the Fletcher School and maybe you'd like to talk to him. So I talked to, to this guy and he said, well, you know, uh, I came here because I wanted to get into the foreign service, but their foreign service isn't hiring at this point. This is probably 1978. And uh, he said, so all of my classmates are going into international business. And I just said to myself, I said, well, uh, I have this offer, you know, to get a PhD program in, in international business. And if that's what it's about, then this would be the thing to do. So this was this sort of a long and I guess rambling story, but um, the the UCLA program at the time I found attractive. I you know it was someplace I hadn't been before in California, and uh, and the the connection of you know my newfound interest in business after working for a company, and uh, my longtime interest in international. This just seemed like a good. Um, combination of uh of interests for me interesting uh, steve uh what's something not many people know about you that you wouldn't put on your cv uh, i guess well most people don't know about me probably I, I, a lot of people know that i was in the army at one point or another i think most people probably don't know that i work for mobile chemical company and uh i tell my students here, here's my short, the short version of my story. Uh, the last six months I worked for mobile, we, we, I was in the engineering, we, we did um, installation. So I put in production lines is what I did. But it typically took eight, eight or nine months to put one in and close out all the books and so forth. And they knew I was going back to school, I told them. And so when new projects came up in January, they didn't want to put me on a on, on something that was that I would leave before it was done. So they said, well, we'd like you to work with one of the plastics engineers who has this idea for a new product. And we need to see if it can be manufactured and if you know, we, can, we can afford it. So um, they put me together with this fellow named Dana Boyd. And uh, he had an idea for uh, putting a drawstring in garbage bags. We made, at that time we made hefty garbage bags and that was back in the days before there were drawstrings. And the idea, they made other bags with drawstrings, but to turn them out at the production speeds that we needed and so forth, it wasn't clear that this could be done or not. And uh, he had the idea that it could be, he actually got a patent on that. And so I was put together with him and we went to various vendors and specified machines and developed some kind of crude designs and tested them out a little bit and, and got involved in this fairly large um, project team that included marketing and finance and all of this business. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fairly convinced that this was very much uh, kind of on the, on the fence. And um, somebody asked me, the, the head of engineering asked me in the hall one day, kind of a surprise, well, do you think this actually can be done? And it was like, uh, answer now, don't prepare. And I actually then thought and said, yes, I, I really think we can do this. It's you know, a little bit different, but I think it can be done. And about a week later, the project got approved for what was then a significant amount of money. And uh, I moved on and they went through and had a lot of startup problems. But by within a year of me leaving, they had put in production lines and this was going and this was like their big selling product and very profitable and so forth. So what, they, what people don't know is I, I have at least some credit for having um, 
having brought the drawstring garbage bag to Western civilization. And uh, I think my friend, I, I actually was on a little podcast that somebody did uh, they, that, and I forget the name of it, they look at thing, you know, things that are out there everyday life, where do they come from? And uh, one of my daughter's friends knew the producers who asked, mentioned it, and she meant, said something about this. And my daughter knew that I had been involved in this, although her version, you know, I basically invented this <laughs> single-handedly. And I said, you know, so I went on the podcast and said, no, I didn't. And, and I actually put them on to uh, Dana Boyd and a couple of the other people I worked with. So it's, it's an interesting little podcast. But I think without my contribution, this might have been at least delayed. It certainly was an idea that was out there. But uh, yeah, I tell my students that, and they, they can relate because virtually all of them have taken out the garbage and appreciate the drawstrings. <laughs> Every time I look at the hip to bag now, I'll, I'll remember you from now on. Um, regrets. Have you got any regrets? Hmm? I, I mean, uh, regrets. Something that regrets. you wish you would have done. But you didn't. Oh uh, well, you know. Um, what can I say? Uh, kind of on a professional side, there are times when I regret that having got out of the military when I did. I mean, it was a, uh, it was a career that I, you know, my my, my father was in, although he was the first person in the family, and my daughter, sisters married guy. One of them's married to a classmate of mine, and and so people have been around and had some success at it, and. Uh, there are times when I kind of wonder if I had, if I didn't maybe jump a little early, but, you know, I think that actually my uh, academics was, was a good career choice for me. And uh, I tried industry, which was fine. And I found it was actually more interesting putting in production lines than, than it might sound. And uh, the military was very interesting as well. It's, I will say that when I was a department chair in Utah for six years, that I think I got more from my leadership experience in the army and leading production or, uh, you know, uh, uh, teams of people putting together production lines. Uh, I learned more of use from those things as far as being a department chair than I did from my formal studies of management. Interesting. So uh, uh, it, it doesn't hurt to have had some of that. Um, uh, so, so still, let's talk about research. And uh, how do you explain your research to people who don't read your work regularly? Say you're stranded in a small village, locals are curious about you. What do you say you do for a living and why is it important? Well, I've, you know, I've talked about it, uh, my international business. I, I used to share it uh, with my brother who was a Stanford MBA and started his own company. And uh, we, he... he found it obscure. <laughs> but, you know, I always thought that uh, one on the international business side, I bought into, and I still think that there's some credence to the idea that company co countries that trade and invest with one another um, are less likely to be shooting at one another. Now that obviously has happened, but I, I think that even today we look at this sort of this tensions between the U S and China. And on a geopolitical scale, I mean, I think that we could be real serious rivals, but I think uh, the commercial ties and the business between China and the U.S. do tend to keep us working together, even at a time when, um, you know, China is trying to find its what they see as an appropriate place in the world as a very large and, and, and powerful country. Uh, that feels like it's been constrained, and the U.S., of course, is relatively uninterested in giving up its 
its role. But I think that the business side really has helped to keep things on a little more even keel. And I, 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 when I came into this, I kind of bought that argument. I don't see it as quite as naively now, but I think that there's still an issue there. Uh, you know, as far as being on the strategy side, and I clearly am, am a strategy person as much. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's fairly easy to to talk about uh, you know, strategy is about what what companies do and why and how that is expected to help them perform better. So it's, I I think it's pretty easy argument to um, to say that uh, doing research on on business strategy or on international business is is uh, relevant and most people can pretty well understand what we're trying to do, I think. Looking back uh, at the field, uh, what can you say about the forgotten areas, omitted variables, uh, things that we should have covered more, but we uh, neglected? Well, I think in looking to the past, what could have been done, I mean, and everything builds. Um, and I think that, that looking to the future, we see much different. But one of the things that uh, you know, I, I did have a couple of papers uh, more early on in uh, sort of international diversification and performance uh, over the years, uh, one AMJ with JT Lee, that's been pretty well cited and Mike Geringer, uh, a couple actually with him. Um, one of the things that that always revealed to me. And, and there's been, of course, a huge discussion about multinationalization performance and all kinds of this and that. And uh, you know, I, I can say that my work, while it clearly has most of the problems that people point at, we were early and didn't know. But one of the things we didn't do and that, that people have, I, th I think, continue not to is really look at the strategic drivers behind investment, sort of differentiating multinationalization driven by, and everybody understands this, are we seeking new markets? Are we seeking production sites? Are we seeking knowledge, et cetera? Uh, everybody can, can say that. I mean, it goes way back, but as far as actually doing empirical research that differentiate, that really looks at the strategic purposes of different types of, of foreign direct investment, um, very few studies have really done that. And as a result, uh, you know, the difference between a company looking for international markets and trying to decide how to enter those, the, the, the classic Dunning type model, um, and, uh, and uh, you know, building a production site in China is just hugely different. And the idea that, that looking at the same set of variables and so forth would give you a realistic sense that, you know, that, that both could be put into the same database and treated as um, you know, homogeneous data is, I think, unrealistic. And so I've, I've felt that in many cases, the real strategic issues behind decisions that end up involving international investments or trade and so forth have been somewhat ignored, uh, especially in the empirical work. Uh, because I think secondary databases aren't really amenable to that or not easily amenable to it. So I, I, I feel that that's been a big issue. And I think it's led to um, a lot of these problems with um, findings such as in the multinationalization performance where we're all over the place. They work, they don't work. Um, sometimes it happens. And, 
and it's very sensitive to the choice of, of data uh, bases, uh, to the choice of variables. Uh, we see lots of, of, of uh, different stories going on. And I think that this has a lot to do, not, not so much with omitted variables per se as omitted concepts or even concepts that are well understood, but are just not uh, brought into the testing design. And, uh, and you know, this, we're talking, let's see, I published that paper in 1996. So we're talking about a lot of years where I think that uh, not enough consideration was given to some of these um, um, firm level strategic factors. So. About, uh, Steve, about creativity in scholarship. Uh, example, I, I want to talk about the example with um, safety. You know, to, to put a drawstring in, inside plastic bag for, for throwing trash out easier, more convenient. Uh, maybe there was some necessity, but about uh, about research, creativity in research. Uh, where do these creative ideas come from, and how do you uh, nurture them? How do you bring them to fruition? Uh, well, in my case, I, I've been involved in some things that I think ended up being somewhat creative, but they seldom started off. I, I, I guess everybody has her own ideas. I think there are a few people who have been notable, notably creative and innovative and seem to have had ideas that kind of came out of the air. Uh, most of my uh, directions of research have come out of um, sort of I find it uh, sort of more of an opportunistic, some, something pops up and it's, it's interesting. And then I start engaging in it and bring some other ideas and eventually it, it comes together. So for me, creativity, it comes more out of, um, I guess to, to quote Kogut and Xander, recombination in, in my own head of bringing together some different things that I've done at a, at a minimum. I mean, being really pretty, I mean, at UCLA, I, I did strategy was my, secondary field, but I was so involved in that. Most of the strategy PhD students thought I was one of them. They didn't really even know I was in the IB program. Mm -hmm. And I think that having a couple of uh, different real strains made a difference. So um, I think one of my more innovative things that I got involved with was the clustering. You mentioned that and the original AMR paper looking at knowledge transmission but uh, that line also includes a couple of papers that I think are pretty interesting on Formula One industry, which is where this started. Uh, I worked mostly, I spent two years at Cranfield um, on an extended sabbatical leave without pay and got and started working with Mark Jenkins. And, you know, I was vaguely interested in cars, an American guy born in the 50s. Uh, so I was somewhat interested in cars and racing a, a little bit. And um, I discovered that Mark was really doing a lot of research on the Formula One industry and, uh, and seeing this as a cluster. And so I, was, I had started looking at the cluster ideas and thinking that that mattered in international business because it refined the idea of location as to, as to a subnational level. So we talked about it a little bit and um, started, you know, what I could see was that the economic geography was kind of well-established, but that they were, they had a hard time differentiating what went on inside of clusters. I mean, they talked about knowledge in the air, but what does that mean? And, and our paper in AMR was about, you know, kind of breaking down this idea of into different types of knowledge and how it might 
be shared or transferred and so forth and, and some mechanisms. Now, just, just again, uh, just for your amusement, wh where did that come from? Well, we were talking a little bit about this and I saw a, an announcement that there was going to be an economic conference in Paris at the Sorbonne. And uh, one of the little things that got mentioned in it was, you know, it was sort of topics was, was you know, I don't know what they called industrial districts or regional economics or something. And it just clicked and I, I went to Mark and said, look, you know, we've talked about this a little bit. Um, how about we write a paper and we targeted at this because wouldn't it be fun to present a paper at the Sorbonne? You know, as one of the oldest universities in, in the world and just something, you know, wouldn't this be kind of cool? So he said, no, no. So we started working on this and he brought in, we had a couple of co-authors who were economic geographers that he knew that were also working on Formula One. And we put together uh, the original paper that that whole stream of research came out of basically on a, a whim uh, to, to and, and that gave us a deadline to have a paper and present it at this economic conference at the Sorbonne. And much to my surprise, because I was the one that presented it, it was well received. And it was up in a session on, you know, regional economics and, you know, three econometricians talking about long equations and me talking story about uh, clusters and, and sharing knowledge. And the questions were all from economists were all to me because you know, the, the equations were too long, even for people who knew what it was about to come up with really a cogent question. So we decided that there was really a future in this and took what was a kind of a ca somewhat casual conference paper and really started to work on it. And uh, you know, Mark and I ended up with an AMR and I think three or four Journal of Economic Geography papers that came out of that. And, uh, so, and I think actually, if you look at those papers, they're, they're pretty creative, uh, but that was a matter of trying to find an interesting thing in, in each one to talk about by bringing together ideas from sort of the knowledge strategy bit, uh, side and the industrial district side and alliances that I'd worked on and so forth and kind of bringing them together into, a, into what was, I think, a relatively novel um, framework, but it certainly did not kind of pop into my head. Oh, you know, here's a brilliant insight on, on knowledge management and clusters or anything like that. Interesting. Uh, Steve, who was your advisor? My advisor actually was Hans Scholhammer at UCLA and uh, Hans has uh, passed on. Um, he was the advisor to uh, several people, many of whom did not stay in economic, uh, in, in, in academics. Um, I, I will say though, Hans was my chair and was great in that he didn't put too many demands on me, although he was the, he was the chair of the IM division himself. And when he was the program chair, things were much smaller in those days and all done by hand. He basically told me that uh, I would have to take over that. So I assembled all, I mean, he made some of the, the final decisions, but I was the one shuffling all the papers and setting them up and reviewing them. And, and so by the time I was a program chair myself, I'd already done it once on a much smaller scale. Um, but I have to give credit to Jose de la Torre because Jose came to UCLA, um, I guess during my second to last year and I asked him to be on my uh, uh, committee 
And really during my final year, as I was actually writing the dissertation, um, Jose's inputs were, were invaluable. He, he could not be chair because he was at the time, he was uh, a visiting professor. Uh, Hans actually had, most of his interest was in um, corporate entrepreneurship at, at the time. And on, uh, he was working on, uh, in some of the exec ed programs and so forth. So he was, he was sort of moving away from the international business by the time I was finishing. And Jose was really coming in and was very engaged in it. So um, in many ways, I considered, although he was not my chair, I considered Jose to be really my main mentor. Uh, and, and, and I have sometimes wondered if he was perhaps the only person on the committee who really read my dissertation in detail, <laughs> because most of the comments came from him. And what was the best advice you received throughout your training, your career? Um, best advice. Well, you know, I, 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 I kind of run that in the back of my head. I have to say the worst advice or, or lack of advice. I, and I don't know that many people would do this now. I, when I was getting ready to leave UCLA um, and was looking at jobs, I didn't really pursue this very hard with Hans and kind of, except he got me an interview at Wharton, which didn't, for various reasons, did not go well. And I did not get an offer at Wharton. But he sort of felt that was the one, you know, top-notch school that he got me an interview at. And that sort of resolved him of further responsibility a little bit. And I didn't get much advice on, you know, where to aim. And I, I, I so I ended up going to Hawaii. And what I realized after a while was that, that you know, sort of your starting job can limit your possibilities. And uh, I, I was naive coming into the business. I, I, I didn't understand. And, and as I say, I mean, Jose was, was there and I, I see him as very, um, very familiar, very uh, uh, politically savvy uh, and probably would have given me better advice perhaps. And as I say, Hans was, he thought I was doing fine and that I would get the Wharton thing. And, and it just kind of went on from there. And I, I personally did not really pursue that. And I allowed my kind of career to be set by kind of assuming that the system would, 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 would work. And, uh, and you know, through not really no fault, but just there were assumptions on various sides. And I, I didn't really actively manage what I was doing. I'd say that most, I mean, we obviously we're interviewing people. In fact, we're interviewing people right now for my job as I go into phase retirement. As uh, there seems to be a lot more attention to it. But back in 19, this is the late 80s, I'd say the, uh, the business side of academics that, you know, where do you work and how much you get paid and what's, you know, what's a fair, fair value, what you should negotiate. These things were less kind of seemed to be less present. And I, I allowed my, myself to kind of go, go with the flow. And you know, I can't say I've had a successful career, so I can't complain about it. But um, it, it, it didn't start out exactly where I really thought it would, but I, I attributed it to, to me sort of taking a little bit, making assumptions 
and not taking good advice, not really seeking advice, not going and sitting down with someone serious, a, a Jose or something like that and saying, you know, how should I manage this career? Because I think we have to realize, even though it is, I mean, there's a degree, it's uh, uh, academics is a, is a, is a calling. Uh, it's also a career and, and a job. And, um, you know, I think that people, you can't afford to lose sight of that completely. And uh, you know, I, I, I can remember giving that advice to people back when I was doing more in you know, junior faculty consortium and things like that. And, and back when those were kind of a little more job oriented is you, you can be doing this because you love it, but you have to keep in mind that it is also a career and it has to be managed as a career. You can't just assume that you know, you'll do good work and people will recognize that. Yeah, kind of out, uh, be, just because and that you will then be able to do all of the things you might want to because, um, you know, there's the, the, the system works. It's, it's too big, it's too busy, and, and, and people really have to intervene. I do think that people are, or the, the younger people I see coming out are much better at that now than they used to be. Your advice to junior faculty and young scholars for career management is well taken. But uh, in the final question, there was a question that I should have asked you about heavens. Maybe we can talk about uh, career advice for the senior faculty and uh, maybe expand a little bit on this phase retirement. That, okay. Yeah, uh, as I told you before we actually started recording, I am going into phase retirement, um, which is pretty good arrangement here. I mean, as with most, I'm, I'm, I'm a, have a reduced teaching schedule and a reduced salary, salary going down less than the teaching schedule. Um, and, but it's a two years and out. And, and I, I decided to do that because, you know, I, five, six years ago, I suddenly realized in my mid sixties, yeah, this is going to come to an end. You're, you're closer to the end of your career than the beginning. And, uh, I started actually thinking about retirement and it's easy to put off and kind of tie it into the pension and each system in the US, the social security and so forth. Um, but one of the things for me and, and people make different choices, but I, I felt that I wanted to go out while uh, people might still regret that I left when I did that I maybe had something still to offer uh, rather than end up in a position where people were, couldn't wait for me to leave and wished I would get the hell out of the way. Um, because I think that you know, a good thing about academics is there's no real retirement age. A difficult thing about academics is because there's no real retirement age, people can hang around. And you know, if you're in a line, you're taking up an opportunity for a younger person with, with perhaps new ideas. And, and you know, uh, for your institution, um, people who might, might have places to go. So I, I and I, yeah, I, I think you know, if I ch had chosen to stick around for another period of years, uh, I assume that I could have continued to make some contribution. Um, one never knows. I just turned 71. And, and, you know, at this age, you never know what's going to happen health-wise. But I, I wanted, I hope to have two more decent years in phase retirement and then retire and still have some energy and have decent health and be able to, to sort of enjoy a few years of retirement. I, I, I don't have a lot of outside interests 
Uh, I don't do consulting and things like that. Um, but I also find that there are other things that are engaging. And, and frankly, you know, as, as you do it more, teaching becomes different. I taught this morning right before we started this, and my knees hurt from just standing up in front of the class. Uh, relatively new event, but, but you know, standing and walking around a little bit on a concrete floor for an hour and 15 minutes is actually becoming more difficult. And, uh, you know, I've reached the point where, say, uh, statistical analysis has moved well beyond what I learned back 30 some years ago. And uh, do I really want to turn my, to go out and study the latest statistical methods and so forth? And I don't, I don't find that I have a lot of motivation in that direction. Again, that's often, you know, you can always find junior people who have that and so forth. But as I, as I reach the point where it's like, well, you could really do this, I find myself saying, I, I don't know that I want to. So I, I feel at that point, it's time to, to get out of the way. As much as like I mentioned global strategy, you know, I, I was asked to put together the idea and then they wanted a co-editor. So I asked Torben to come in as co-editor. And I said, when we did that, I said, I'll do this for two terms in six years. Um, and then I'm gonna step down. And we decided that Torben would do three terms. He's a little younger than I am, not a lot, but a little younger. And frankly, Copenhagen Business School gave him better institutional support at that time than the University of Richmond was able to give me. So we said, well, he'll stick around. And, and you know, I didn't want, I, I felt that after six years, other, somebody new would have some new ideas and bring something that I wasn't going to. And I felt like I was reasonably innovative and came up with some good ideas. And I think the global strategy, and I think some of the ideas we developed there, I think Elaine picked up for AIB or uh, for Jibs rather. Mm -hmm. um, and and so, so that was good. But if I'd spent another three years, I think at some point it would have become you know, less innovation and more just kind of keeping it going. And as every, almost everybody knows, SMJ suffered from that. Uh, and and I, I have long felt that, you know, there, there's, there's a limited period of time that people can really contribute and be innovative and be, and be creative and, and be positive, a positive influence on what they do. And if you stick at it too long, um, you become stale. And if you're in a powerful position, the whole thing can can become stale. And um, I seem to have found that to be a something I didn't want to do. And uh, you know, I, so G, I got out of GSJ at the time when people would say, well, gee, why are you leaving now? You could kind of pass it on to Alvaro uh, and, and Ram, who did a great job. And, and same thing with a career. You know, um, somebody new will get hired into my slot and is going to be a great contributor. And they're going to be young, and they're going to have innovative ideas for teaching and innovative ideas for research. That either that because of new influences, they'll be modern, uh, they'll be up to date, and and make connections that I might not be able to. I think I, I and I think I could still contribute. As I said, I'd rather leave while I can still contribute and maybe leave a few contributions out than hang around so long that people felt I was dragging everything down. And, uh, and I mean, that's not to say you have to, it's not to say for my colleagues who are older than I am uh, or have been around longer than I have, who are still engaged, plenty of people are making major contributions still. Um, this is just, you know, kind of my take on it. 
And uh, you know, I, I, I have not thought beyond that to whether I'll try to stay really engaged or not. Uh, I might try to become a bit of a you know, senior guru and available to people for advice. Um, but I, you know, I don't, you. I, I, I don't know for sure. But I, that, so that's that's just that's my take on. Thank you. Thank you, Steve, for this uh, interesting and candid interview. I, I learned a lot. Uh, I'm sure many will agree with me. And good luck with your retirement. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. And I will just to close, let me say that, that I do, one regret I have is I should have put more focus on my family and personal life because as, as the career starts coming to an end, it is indeed true that uh, you look around and there's, you know, the work isn't supporting you. And we, you know, uh, many of us put too much focus on, on that perhaps. And, uh, you know, we're sort of in the process of renegotiating life in a way with, with my wife and, and of course kids are out of the house, but um, try, trying to find what you might've left behind by spending maybe a little too much time and focus on, uh, on uh, turning out a little research. So um, that good old work-life balance that we talk about. And I think many of us, find difficult to to really strike is uh it does at the end kind of uh, come around to where the uh the rest of life suddenly becomes important as you start thinking about setting the work aside mm. so I, I encourage everybody to uh to make sure that they are indeed finding um finding a balance that works for them and 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 uh and and be sure that they go further as they go ahead in life that they're uh, they're really ready for that to happen because it, it does tend to come to everybody sooner or later. Anyway, thanks. Thanks. I was really uh, interesting to talk to you. And I've enjoyed the series and listening to other people and uh, hopefully uh, I could say something useful. It was. Thank you so much for your time and support. Thanks. Again. Thanks. Oh, guys. Yeah. Bye-bye.